this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Kristen Turner, and this is New Books and Music, a podcast of the New Books Network. I'm talking to Michael O'Malley today, author of The Beat Cop, Chicago's Chief O'Neill and the Creation of Irish Music, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2022. Born in Ireland in 1848, Francis O'Neill emigrated to the United States soon after the Civil War was over and eventually joined the Chicago Police Department. He rose through the ranks and became chief of police in 1901. But in his spare time and after his retirement in 1905, O'Neill devoted himself to collecting Irish traditional music, ultimately publishing several important large collections of the repertory, as well as a book that documents Ireland's musical landscape at the turn of the 20th century. O'Malley tells O'Neill's story within multiple interwoven contexts, including British colonialism, Irish nationalism in the United States, American race relations, the standardization in American institutions, and the internal politics of the Chicago Police Department and the city it protected. O'Malley also reveals fascinating connections between O'Neill's police work and his approach to Irish music. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. Um, so what brought you to the subject of writing a biography of Francis O'Neill? I, uh, you know, I'll say at the beginning, I'm Irish American, but I'd never been interested in Irish stuff. I didn't do Irish history. I wasn't particularly interested in Irish music. In fact, maybe slightly hostile to it, although I identified as very Irish American. And uh, we did a family trip to Ireland. And in preparation for that, I started reading about you know, Irish music and culture. And I discovered O'Neill and I thought, this is an incredible story that hasn't been really been written about. Now, several people in Ireland had written about him because he's a he's a hero over there in some circles. He's regarded as having preserved all these tunes from extinction, which I'm not 100% sure is right. But um, I thought there has to be more to the story than just heroic collector because being a cop in Chicago in the late 19th century was not a, you know, a peaceable job. And uh, I was very interested in the tension between first being a patrolman and then being the administrator of a really large city of millions of people, while also fantasizing about the folk music of the peasants back in Ireland. And that tension seemed to be really fascinating. 
And uh, it's kind of like he's, you know, he's one of those anti-modernists in some way. Uh, he's an, he's yearning for a pre-industrial past, but at the same time, he is so deeply enmeshed in the life of a thriving, booming industrial city. And that that tension was really fascinating, I thought. Um, why don't we start with a quick rundown of O'Neill's life, just sort of the highlights, so that as we talk more, our listeners will sort of have a chronology to kind of put our discussion within. So can you just kind of give us the the Wikipedia article of Francis O'Neill, if you will? <laughs> He's born in, in West Cork in a place called Trollibon or Trollibane, depending on who, how you pronounce it. And his family are pretty well off. They uh, might they might be called strong farmers. They don't own their land, but they lease over 100 acres of land. And that makes them profitable. And uh, so he gets a good, pretty good education. He's the youngest of six. And he gets a good education uh, up to what we would think of as a, a good high school education. Uh, but there's nothing for him in Ireland. His brother is converting the farm to cattle rearing. And tenants are being displaced, and he he sets off to sea. He try, you know, his family. It's clear his family wanted him to be a priest, which is common, but he didn't want to do that. Although he could never quite admit it in his garbled accounts of how he ended up at sea. But he ships as a cabin boy on a British vessel. He goes to England, and then becomes an itinerant sailor for about four years. And he eventually circles the globe, and he has some fairly amazing adventures, including being shipwrecked on a guano island where he nearly dies of starvation. They're marooned on a guano island, digging out bird droppings for fertilizer. And uh, he's rescued by a ship that's crewed by all Hawaiians. And it was one of the pivotal moments in his life. He tells about how he, he was given extra rations by one of the Hawaiian sailors because the Hawaiian sailor played the flute, and so did O'Neill. And they exchanged a few tunes. And so he arrived in Honolulu healthy, but he also, he lived on the prairie in Missouri. He uh, herded sheep in the Sierra Nevada foothills. And this was in the 1860s. So it was quite an amazing life. And he, he marries a woman he met on a ship when he was working on a ship going to America. And then he moves to Chicago with her and works in the stockyards and works on the, on the lake and ships on the lake. And eventually manages to get himself on the police force. And then he rises steadily through a combination of, of, he was intelligent and I think fairly courageous, but also he had uh, really good organizational and clerical skills. He was a good writer and a good, uh, he had good penmanship, which is an amazingly big deal in the era before typewriting. It was really important. So he, he rose pretty steadily, but not spectacularly. And then he was uh, appointed to three, three terms as chief of police starting in 1901, which was unprecedented at the time. It was usually a one term and out position, typically because somebody else wanted to get their favored candidate into the job. So you didn't stay in it for very long. He got three terms. It was very unusual and was pretty successful at it, although he resigned in his third term for reasons that are somewhat unclear. And in retirement, he was quite wealthy by then. He had a home in you know, on the Gulf Coast in Mississippi, and he had a farm outside of Chicago, and he had a very nice house in Chicago. He continued to write and research about Irish music and continue to do some writing into his old age, into the 30s. Um, one of the things that, there's several strands of, of topics that you follow throughout the book. And one of them is sort of looking at how O'Neill never really fits into kind of a stereotypical idea of I, either 
an Irish person in Ireland during the potato famine and the years following, or in America, where he often stands at odds with, I would say, the larger Irish American community, or maybe the stereotypical Irish American community of the turn of the century. Can you talk a little bit about this, this place where he was never quite in the center of the community as we might think of it today? It's very important that his family was the upper class of Catholic Irish, you could say. I mean, when I say, if you look at the pictures of their house, there's a picture of the house in the book. It's a, it's a two-story stone farmhouse. It's not a one-story hut or a two-room hut, uh, which is more common for his neighbors. So they're fairly well off. And that puts him a little bit at odds with the peasants that he's celebrating. A lot of his recollections of Ireland involve peasants happily dancing at the crossroads and and people coming to the house and singing, and it's a sort of musical utopia. And I think he, that's right after the famine and other, and in fact, he's born during the famine and accounts of West Cork, which is hit really badly by the famine, often described it as a desolated land, you know, depopulated, where are all the people and silenced by sorrow and emigration. So his account of that is, he's at a little bit at odds with his community, I guess is what I'd say. And then he's at odds with his family because there isn't a place for him. In he's not going to inherit the land because they can't subdivide the lease, the leases. So he, like others of his siblings, he goes to America. And then what separates him in some ways in America is he doesn't drink, he doesn't smoke, he doesn't gamble. He's a fairly abstemious man. So while he's a, I think probably a likable character and a, a good-hearted character, he's he's not a, you know, a, he's not fun in the bar. <laughs> he's probably the opposite. And that puts him at odds a little bit. Uh, he's as a musician, he's as interested in in collecting tunes as he is in playing them. And in he lives in Missouri, in a town called Medina, and he describes barn dances there among the settlers. There was an attempt to build a Catholic colony in Medina, specifically for Catholics, and there are Germans, French, and Irish there, in addition to Native Americans. That is Native European Americans, and he describes these barn dances. But he says he's always poised behind the fiddler carefully trying to write down or record what they're playing. And he's a little bit of an outsider often. And I think that was, there's an awkwardness in some of his writing that I feel makes me feel for him, actually. I think he could never quite be comfortable in uh, some people's company. Do you also see that coming through or that discomfort um, being caused because there were times when Irish Americans in Chicago were involved in things like the Pullman strike and other kind of labor movements and, and sort of unrest, not to mention just crime. Um, and he was the, he was high up and at times, and, you know, for part of his life chief of the Chicago police. And so he was really the voice of the establishment. Absolutely. Um, do you see that also uh, affecting his relationships with other Irish Americans? This is one of the core themes of the book is that he wants to collect music from people and they don't want to share their tunes. And you still find this today in Irish music. People have a tune that they're very proud of and they don't want to just hand it out to everybody. But I think partly it's the authority of the policeman that they resent. I mean, he was he made a decision, I think, because he didn't drink and he wasn't a kind of good old guy. He uh, uh, he decided to sort of ally himself with the city's uh, capitalists. He says that at several points that he saw himself as serving the interests of the city's large business. And that meant breaking strikes. And he was pretty clearly a strike breaker, particularly in the Pullman strike, when he saw himself intervening on the, the side of labor. And of course, in those unions, who was in those unions? 
Irish Americans in very large numbers. So he's a little bit at odds with his community there. And uh, he's at odds with his community, I think, also in that, to me, this is one of the interesting dilemmas of the book. Nobody was calling for a collection of these tunes. There's a thriving community playing this music all over Chicago, way better than in Ireland, he says, when he goes back to Ireland. There's way better Irish music in Chicago than in Ireland. But none of those people are calling for a, a huge collection. And his desire to make a collection puts him at some odds with that community as well, because you know, who's in charge of it and who's saying what gets in and what doesn't and who's giving it a name and he's paying for everything. And he has most of the people who work with him on the book are his subordinates on the police force or in some way owe him for their position. And um, that raises some problems for him as well. Well, that brings up just why, if there wasn't a call for it, and um, he was a musician himself, so he could play this music, why was he so interested in collecting it? It's a really good question. And I think he's, he's the argument that I, I found most compelling. Of course, there were people who collected Irish music before, uh, b before him in Ireland, and it was very typically linked to nationalism. You know, and the claim is if Irish music is distinctive, then Ireland is entitled to be distinctive as a country. If Ireland has distinctive culture, then it's entitled to distinctiveness in the world. And uh, Irish music collection is heavily connected to Irish nationalism. And he's, but he's not as interested in Irish nationalism as he is in Irish American nationalism, because now he's in this new world. It's so much not like West Cork, right? West Cork is hilly and green and verdant and kind of rugged. It's beautiful. And Chicago's flat as a board and it stinks. You know, it's gigantic buildings. It's dynamic and exciting. He's interested in what it means to be Irish American in that context. And that may be part of it. He, he wants to preserve, he says, what he thinks is fast vanishing. Um, that's part of it. I think he's also offering a form of Irish American nationalism that isn't as heavily political. The politics of Irish nationalism in Chicago could get very violent and very dangerous, and it's highly factionalized. How should we proceed? You know, what's the correct course of action? What should an independent Ireland look like? Should it be ruled by the church? Should it be a socialist republic? Should it be a paradise for capitalist investment? You know, what should it be? And his offers, he offers, sort of like the Gaelic League in Ireland, a cultural identity you know irish irishness consists of these cultural practices and he kind of leaves politics aside and when he talks about irish polit irish american politicians he usually expresses a fair amount of disgust for the speeching the speechifying and the flattering platitudes and the he he thinks that's a, a lot of nonsense um he was part of a number, a, there were a lot of people at the turn of the 20th century who were collecting folk music, sometimes from their own communities, other times going into communities that were not their own, such as there were several white people collecting music from native communities, for instance. Did, did you find evidence that he saw himself as part of this larger movement of collecting traditional music, or was he just not aware of what else was going on? Do you have a sense of that? A little bit. He was a little bit aware. Like he didn't know about Cecil Sharp, as far as I can tell, or or the child ballads. He didn't. I don't remember him referencing them at any point. But he was very aware that other people had collected Irish music, and he was very aware that some people in the Irish music community had manuscripts and and written collections that information that he wanted to get. He took a lot of tunes from something called Ryan's Mammoth Collection, which was a 
published out of Boston, a big collection of now we know them as sort of old time fiddle tunes. And he took a bunch of uh, 200 some tunes from Ryan's without attribution. So he knew there was he knew there were other collecting efforts when he talks to after he retires, he talks to uh, collectors in England, um, Alf uh, Alfred Percival Graves, who's um, Robert Graves, father, the poet. And uh, uh, he starts to get involved in the international community of co folklore collectors there. And his letters with Henry Mercer are very interesting because Mercer is a sort of understudied figure. He's an antiquarian and an archaeologist and uh, obsessed with folk culture and folklore in general. And his letters with Mercer, there's clearly a dual enthusiasm. And again, the enthusiasm is the, the sort of nostalgia for the pre-industrial past is very strongly pronounced, but at the same time, they're both writing to each other as very modern people using, I don't know if you know about Mercer, but uh, have you ever, do you know? Only what you introduced me to in your book. He was a new I mean, figure for me. If you're ever in Philly, me. take yeah. the train out to the Mercer Museum. It's astonishing, astonishing. Yeah. Pictures I definitely online. wanted to go. I was really yeah. thinking, oh, I wish I didn't live in North Carolina. <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> so. it's astonishing, it's astonishing. Uh, and his, he built his all his home, his house, and his museum with reinforced concrete, and one of the first reinforced concrete buildings in America. So he has this faux French chateau made out of reinforced concrete and uh, heated and very. He's sort of an innovator, but also firmly fixed on the past. And his letters to his letters to O'Neill are very admiring, and O'Neill feels that like he, oh, this person understands me. You know, this person understands what I'm trying to do, and they have a pretty warm exchange from O'Neill who tended to be kind of brusque in his correspondence. I think, um, you know, I use the phrase that I, that people today, it's a jargon term, it's not a precise term, but we might use the term on the spectrum to describe O'Neill in some ways, because he was kind of emotionally uh, clumsy sometimes. Uh, but he was definitely felt some connection to the folklore community through um, Mercer, but he didn't know about um, John Powell, who's a Virginia composer who's obsessed with folklore and a, a deep racist. He doesn't know about, um, he might've known about Henry Ford's folk dance interests because he dedicated a copy of a book to Ford, which I make note of and I find slightly troubling, but um, because Ford was a notorious anti-Semite at that point, but O'Neill doesn't give him any evidence of that kind of language. So of anti-Semitic language or, or really racialized language. So I think it's it's interesting how little he knows about it. I think Irish music had sort of boxed itself off at that point. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Um, you referenced uh, in passing that he took, without attribution, 200 folk songs from another collection. Um, but there are a lot of issues that are raised when people start to collect folk songs. Um, issues that uh, I think sometimes might have been raised in his lifetime. Others are issues that we are thinking about from, from a, sort of a modern perspective of ethics, but things like, you know, who owns a folk song? Who gets to collect it? Who gets to profit from it? Um, you know, are the people who are being collected from, you know, the uh, 
the musicians he was working with, were they aware of what he was doing? You know, all of these uh, different ethical issues. Can you talk a little bit more about how he navigated those those ethical quandaries and how much you seem to be even aware of them? Because, of course, in some cases, I'm raising issues that were really not raised at the time and others were big issues at the time. It, it was a recurring problem for him that people didn't want to give up their tunes and um they regarded them as belonging to their family or themselves or their their village you know their their townland back in ireland and they didn't particularly see a need to share them so he would often engage in various forms of subterfuge like he would have he would send officers literally over to sort of eavesdrop he would have people in another room listening in he would um sometimes show up in his full uniform and request the uh the tune he was also um and this, to me, is one of the more troubling aspects. I mean, he was fairly dismissive of the actual community of practitioners unless they had tunes he'd never heard before. If they were a good player, that was great. But he was really interested in you if you could show him some new tunes. There's a certain amount of, of desire to be the original or have the authoritative account. Or um, I think the most generous reading is that you could see Irish America as being uh, influenced by American music, influenced by the... The minstrel show influenced by the by brought by vaudeville and that he wanted to kind of purify those influences so he's very interested in trying to figure out what was genuinely irish um but he wasn't interested in who owned it and he tended to talk about it as the patrimony of the irish people with but the book says uh o'neill's music of ireland it doesn't say the music of ireland collected by francis o'neill it very clearly stakes a claim. And in every one of his books, he's show, he includes a picture of himself in his full uniform as superintendent of police. So there's definitely an ownership claim being made there. And it's connected to his authority as a, as a policeman, his authority as an administrator. I mean, he doesn't show up in the garb of a, a farmer. He shows up in the uniform of a, of a policeman. And um, he said many, many times that he could not have done the collecting without the authority of the badge. That is the, the ability to coerce cooperation, the ability to do favors or encourage cooperation, the ability to help people get jobs or promotions. He said it more than half a dozen times in letters that it would not have been possible to do it except through the, the position he held. Well, that does bring up the connection between O'Neill, the folk collector or folk music collector and O'Neill, the police officer. And so you've talked about one connection, which is he could either coerce or convince or make it worth their while to to give him a tune. Uh, but there are other ways that you see connections between his professional life as a police officer and his um, folk collecting. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. That was one of the things that most fascinated me because I'd done a lot of work on that before I encountered O'Neill. So he's in the middle of a you know, Max Weber called it the information revolution. He's in the, the development of double entry bookkeeping and systematic files. And when he first comes into the police force, he's, um gets a job at headquarters as a clerk, which is a big deal. He's like the assistant to the chief. And the way they kept records is you wrote them by hand and then you rolled them up and you tied them with a ribbon and you threw them on top of a shelf. That's and he he was the only one who did that. Other people didn't do that. So that there's no file cabinets, there's no rubber bands, there's no staples, paper clips, there's no hierarchical filing scheme. So the records are inexact and imprecise. And he's a fairly exacting person. So he's known for keeping better records. And during his time as chief, they get better telegraphic connection between stations, but they get a whole set of systems for identifying people. And this is really important. He's 
Chicago is a dynamic city. It's rapidly growing. And how can you tell if this guy you arrested has been arrested before? You know, is he that same guy or is he a different guy? So Chicago and New York are the two leading cities in America in taking what we now call mugshots of people. And they would bring a guy in and photograph him, sometimes, you know, forcing him to hold his head still. They put their hands on either side of his head and you could see them straining so they could freeze the picture long enough. And that itself is a big problem because it's great to have a picture, but how do you organize those? How do you catalog them? How do you search them? How do you retrieve them? Um, they do that. And he's very enthusiastic about that. And then they also use this fascinating thing called the Bertillon system. And Bertillon was a French detective, French policeman, who recognized that your face could change enough so you couldn't be identified. You might have facial hair or scars or you, you're, you'd gain weight or lose weight. Your face could change and the results could be ambiguous, but parts of your body would never change. So it'd be things like the color of your eyes or the length of your longest finger or the length from your elbow to the tip of your longest finger. And he would take a suspect and go through a series of Bertillon measurements of these little minute portions of their body and then compile a card with all these indexes. And then you could cross-reference the card once you found a person. The idea of Bertillon was you could actually transmit a picture of someone by telegraph, if you had their Bertillon index numbers, you could send those to New York and they could recreate the person. And O'Neill was very enthusiastic about the Bertillon system as chief. He gave multiple reports on it to the um, board of aldermen and the mayor. And he also taught seminars to other police forces on what Chicago was doing to identify criminals. So he has this interest in forensics, right, in the in forensic identity tracking. The Bertillon system they're using in Chicago up to about 1908, and then it's rapidly replaced by fingerprints. But they don't know about fingerprints when O'Neill is chief, and he's very enthusiastic about the Bertillon system. So my argument is that the, the interest in collecting tunes is very similar to the interest in tracking identity, administrative record keeping, mapping and surveillance of the city. And he would forensically recreate tunes. You know, this is is this the A part of one tune and the B part of another, or are these two distinctive tunes? He would have to make those decisions. And when I talk about O'Neill, I have a picture of a mugshot from the Chicago police archives, and you can't tell if it's the same guy. You know, it might be the same guy, and I always say, would you send him to the gallows on the basis of this similarity? Uh, he was forensically recreating a set of cultural artifacts, and he was imagining them having a fixed identity, sort of like what he was doing as a police officer, he wanted to pin down the identity of every suspect and make sure that this guy always remained, you know, Ed O'Reilly. And he'd be the same Ed O'Reilly in 1890 as he was in 1910. Um, and it, that's an interesting endeavor because Irish music kind of doesn't work that way. It's an alien imposition on a folk tradition. I think anybody who studies folklore would recognize that. It's a bit of an alien imposition to catalog them like that and pin them like butterflies in a case. It would pin them in place. And he knew that. He knew that he was only capturing a sort of skeleton of the tune. The, the tune lived in the playing. He knew that. But at the same time, I, I see a direct connection between his policing and his collecting. The You bring up that he wanted to codify this music in a way. But one of the other things you talk about in the book is that he had very specific ideas what Irish music was and was not. Can you talk a little bit about how he categorized music, how he decided whether or not something was Irish enough for or, or appropriately Irish for his yeah. collecting? He, he prided himself on having a really good ear. He said that and that he could tell, he could hear it. You know, there was an Irish quality that he could hear. 
Uh, and of course, some of those tunes he took from Ryan's Mammoth collection probably were Irish in origins. But I don't know. I, it's not that interesting to me whether it's, quote unquote, really Irish or not. That's sort of the wrong question to ask. But he was very consumed with that question. And he, when the first collection came out, he took a lot of criticism for including tunes that weren't strictly Irish, people felt. And he had to justify them. And one of the ways he had to justify them was saying, well, this is where it got, this is how it came to me. You know, I didn't learn it from a German. I learned it from this guy, you know, uh, Phelan, who was a cop. He had he had to describe it in those terms. Um, I think that's staking out a role for what Irish means. And again, it's connected to cultural. So if, if readers don't know, uh, Ireland is very divided, as again, as to how it's going to be, what kind of republic is it going to be? And one move in this debate is uh, typically among elites is uh, represented by the Gaelic League, which wants to restore the Irish language, restore Irish music, restore Irish sports and games and play only those things. And the leader of this is a guy named Douglas Hyde, who's an Anglo-Irish uh, son of a Presbyterian minister or Anglo. I can't remember the domination. I'm sorry, but he's a Protestant and um, he's a galvanic figure in a lot of ways because he imagines this secular Ireland completely committed to Gaelicization. And it's a kind of romantic, you know, racially troubling version of Irish, uh, talking about Celtic culture and the ancient Celts. And um, But Hyde is very important in the revival of the Irish language. And O'Neill is very inspired by Hyde. And I think what, he, what Hyde offers him was, I'm not mucking around about with people who are trying to blow up the House of Parliament, you know, I'm I'm not I'm not engaged in in the dangers of the Irish Republican struggle. I'm going to create this kind of cultural nationalism, and of course that would be comfortable with someone like Neil O'Neill because he's rising, he's affluent, he's got multiple properties. He doesn't really want to get risk any of that in a struggle for a version of Ireland that he might not even like. So the cultural nationalism piece is very. Uh, powerful for him. I don't. I think I got a, a far afield from your question there. No, that's exactly what I was thinking about. And also, it's interesting this idea that he thought he could hear Irishness in music. That's such an essentializing kind of way of thinking about music that was completely typical of his period. As this idea that that there was there was a inherent Irishness or Italianness or whatever. Right, right. There was a national character. Right. Exactly. Yeah. He uses the language of race a lot, you know, the Irish race. And the, and he doesn't use it like a eugenicist, but it's really clear. He does think there's a racial genius for music among the Irish, and it's expressed in certain ways. But he'll also say it only exists in performance. If you don't have the idiom of performance, it just lies flat, which, which is pretty true. So um, he thought he had a good ear. He had collaborators that he worked with fairly closely. And that's an interesting relationship itself. One was a guy named Edward uh, Cronin who was had trained as a weaver in Ireland, but there was no work for weavers. So he came to Chicago um, and worked at the McCormick Reaper plant. And he was a gifted fiddler, really good, and had a prodigious memory for tunes. And O'Neill talks about how hard it was to get him to cooperate initially with his project. But when he did, he became this fountain of tunes that are included. Sometimes they're credited in the collections as Cronin. And then he had a man named James O'Neill, who was uh, uh, from Belfast or... Uh, 
just a, just outside Belfast, who was a good fiddler who could read and write. Both men could read and write music better than O'Neill could. So they became his main collaborators, and they were people he relied on. And then he had a community of Irish music players who were good. You, there are bad 78s, you know, cylinder recordings of these guys. They're quite good. Um, but he he would rely on their judgment too. But he was the boss of it. And that, you know, he was the guy in charge. He was funding the whole effort. He had the political and legal and cultural authority to organize the work. And James O'Neill, he O'Neill, Francis said he was a coal heaver when I discovered him. You know, he was just shoveling coal and I brought him on the police force and I got him promoted to sergeant. And there are multiple people like that that he helps along. And uh, they're the kind of jury that decide what's Irish and what's not. He talks about recreating a song that he only could only remember from one phrase his mother would sing and how they forensically recreated it sort of working backwards from that one phrase and it's in the book as uh, the 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 flourishing state of kilmary and uh uh it's an invented song right it's invented from fragments of memory and fragments of practice so his i was very interested in how he staked that claim to authority and there were tunes that were played by irish americans that he completely completely refused to accept because he thought they were too modern or not strictly Irish enough. Um, you mentioned that he thought of, of that there was an Irish race. And um, this is one of the things that if you work in the turn of the 20th century in the U.S. and other countries, their idea of race was very different than our idea of race today. And this is something that you that that sort of um, impacts O'Neill and this book and two ways i think one is just this idea that there were what we would call national or ethnic identities or separate races um but also that there's this very clear um flexible but clear hierarchy of marginalization among what we would call all white people what they called different races um and and that um, affected Irish very substantially and also gave them a kind of common cause and connection to African-Americans at that time. Um, and I'd love for you to talk more about that really complicated thing that was happening around Irish-American identity and how it impacted O'Neill. It's such a tricky thing to talk about because it... Yeah, I don't want to give um, any oxygen to people who claim, oh, the Irish were slaves too, right? Which, which clearly I think is not true. Nor do I want to minimize the extent of Irish subalterity. It's a historical fact. It's really clear that when Irish people arrive in America, they're often living with African-Americans in African-American neighborhoods. Uh, they're adjacent to each other. They're doing the same jobs. And it's really obvious that there are dance styles like tap dance and Irish dance, it's not, you don't have to be, it doesn't, you have to be Einstein to see there's a similarity there. And there are lots of historical accounts of those, of that overlap. And then there's the minstrel show, which is the institutionalized form of popular culture in America, the most important form of popular music in America by far, I think. And many of the minstrel show performers were Irish, um, Catholic Irish, but also Protestant Irish from the earlier immigration. And some minstrel tunes maybe are Irish. Right there, but then there maybe black people like them. They like to dance to them. It's very difficult to put the categories on them that we want to put on them now. I don't want to suggest that there was some utopia where oh they all played and danced together because the advantages of whiteness were manifestly clear to Irish Americans as soon as they got off the boat, and they were happy to take advantage of them. 
But there's clearly a lot of interaction between the Irish and black communities. O'Neill's memoir, that he wrote a memoir, doesn't speak to that very much. He speaks with uh, respect for some African-American characters, but he doesn't talk about the hybrid culture of black and Irish music, which I think is more and more scholars are recognizing existed. Uh, you can talk about that without, again, creating this idea of a utopia where race problems don't exist. They clearly did. But the the hybrid nature of a lot of American music is underappreciated, I think. And I, can I say that, you know, I'd want to say that without minimizing the originality and the distinctiveness of the contributions African-Americans made. That, that um, the example in the book that's kind of interesting, and the research there was not most, I mostly took that from secondary research, was a woman named Kitty O'Neill, who was a dancer, and she was celebrated in New York. She did something called Kitty O'Neill's Champion Jig, and it was a sand jig where they would spread sand on the stage, and they would do this sort of sliding, like a snare drum. They would do something more than just the regular taps. And um, you can find films of African-Americans doing sand sand jigs or tap dance sand dances um so it was a it was a form that existed in the urban in the urban world where lines were more blurry i think part of his agenda and, and not out of mean-spirited racism part of his agenda was policing that line between black and irish um there's no evidence that he was what we would call a bigot right there's no evidence he might be termed a racist in the same way that virtually everybody was a racist but he was not a bigot and he was not actively hostile at, at any point that I could see. Well, and you even talk about how he um, promoted some black officers into roles that they had not been in before in the Chicago police department, which would indicate, as you say, might have, you know, had the kind of what, what are definitely racist beliefs, but also where was willing to see, um, uh, see people, in different ways that he promoted uh, African-American the sergeant, yeah. right? And there was nothing in yeah. him for that probably politically because overwhelmingly black Americans were going to be Republicans because they were the party of Lincoln and the party of liberation. And uh, the Democrats were the party of Jim Crow. And he, he served a Democratic mayor and a Democratic administration. So it's unlikely that he got any direct political gain from that. But then in the Teamsters strike, he was perfectly willing to use existing racial divides to break that strike. And in that strike, he brought in uh, the Teamsters went on strike. The businesses brought in strike breakers, some of whom were African-American. And O'Neill deputized them as special deputies, which gave them the authority to sort of fight back, which was troubling in all sorts of ways. It was if you were an African-American, it was kind of great because you were being respected and given the authority of the state. If you were a white person, you were enraged. You couldn't tell the difference between a special deputy and a strike breaker, and it had a major role in breaking that strike. So he was very smart, O'Neill, and that's not a particularly compelling. It doesn't. He doesn't come out of that looking particularly well, but he was praised by the African American press in Chicago for fair treatment and you know being a friend to the race. Um. So I'm a musicologist, so of course all the stuff that you had to say about Irish music and, and um, Irish identity <laughs> and music was very cool to me. But I was equally interested in um, your accounts of Chicago and the Chicago um, political machine that the police department served and that O'Neill had to navigate. And I'd love to talk a little bit about, you know, what was policing like yeah. at the turn of the century and what would have 
how did the politics that just absolutely infuse the department from top to bottom, how did that affect a regular person who might need the police in some way or right. were involved with the police as, as a suspect or, yeah. or a criminal? Chicago, it's astonishing that it functions at all in some ways. I mean, there's the, the city, Irish people are, the police force is mostly Irish and German and more Irish than German. And that's because they arrive at the time when the police force is being formed. And American cities are starting to form professional police forces. And a police job is a really good job because it's steady. There's opportunities for promotion and there's a pension. It's a really good job. So everybody would like it. At the same time, it puts you at odds with your community. And nobody, rarely do people like a policeman unless they need him, right? Unless they're, they, they, they're not inclined to like the policeman. And he describes being, a, you'd be put on as a provisional policeman and people would know you were provisional and they would throw things at you and hurl insults at you and make fun of you. And while you were a provisional policeman, he says, the only way you could get earn a, a permanent position in the force was to beat somebody up, like to get into a scrap and beat somebody. And he gets into a scrap like that and gets shot. He gets shot in the shoulder and it's, it turns out to be a non-threatening wound, but, um, that makes his reputation and helps him earn a, a way out of the force. But he, before that, he can't even get the provisional job without the help of an alderman or a mad district, a local night court judge or somebody in power. And in fact, not just one alderman, you had to have a bunch of aldermen. Chicago is organized so that they're neighborhood districts and they're all run by an alderman who you vote for. And the alderman is the most powerful guy because he typically owns a saloon or a gambling house and uh, or an opium den or a brothel, and that funds his largesse. But his major role is to hand out favors to voters. So he is. There's a, historians are very divided about the role of the the boss like this because on the one hand he's corrupt, on the other hand he is the doorway through which people become citizens. And he's he doesn't in the classic telling, the alderman doesn't care whether you. Uh, you know, are well-educated. He doesn't care whether you're Protestant. He doesn't care about much except your vote. And he's willing to help you get a job and help you out if you get in legal trouble and help you out, you know, in some kind of neighborhood dispute as long as he gets your votes. So nothing happens in Chicago without not just the help of an alderman, but typically a team of aldermen. And several times O'Neill is frustrated that he feels like he's very good at his job, but he can't get a promotion unless he gets a team of people to back it. And uh, it's it's thoroughly corrupt. And then the police are, of course, the agents of the alderman. Then if the alderman got to your job and the alderman runs a saloon, you're going to look the other way when you walk past and see something illegal going on. Right. It's not it's just common sense. So the police are notoriously corrupt. Um, the aldermanic system, it's great. It's a great system. Jane Adams, the great reformer, writes really compellingly about her realization about how the ward boss rules. He doesn't rule by tyrannical authority. He rules by being everybody's friend and knowing everybody in his district. And as soon as they have a problem coming in to try to help them in a direct personal way. And O'Neill is, I think, troubled by that because he wants there to be a system of merit. He's a well-educated guy. He has definite abilities. He's an exacting person. He wants there to be something more than just this favor bank. And so do other reformers, but he cannot rise at every stage. His rise is dependent on the favorite, the favoritism of some faction or other. And he's always being plotted against by some other faction. Um, does that mean then that if he arrested someone 
that if they had enough pull with the alderman, that arrest would go away or oh, did, yes. once they were in. Yeah. I'm just like, I, I guess I'd like you to talk a little bit more about the extent to which the rule of law, the sort of um, the, the, the workings of the justice system were compromised right. from uh, by this patronage system. He's, he's assigned at one point kind of, by his enemies to the Harrison Street Station, which was the most notorious station in the center of the what was called the Levy District in Chicago, which is a den of of uh, wickedness and sin. And uh, and there he is, not drinking or smoking or gambling, but it, he's in charge of this, and he he hates it. But he says it was just common if you were brought in on some kind of charge, you would just slip a piece of folded paper money into the hand of the judge, and that would be the end of it, or the lawyer or the policeman, and the charge would go away. And he tells a story of uh, an Englishman who comes into the station house and he's hot. He's burning mad because he's been robbed and he knows who did it and he wants to press charges. And um, they press charges, but they can never get the they start to press charges, but they can never get the people to show up at the same time. And eventually the Englishman says, you know, I don't think I'm going to do this because they offered him 50 bucks and a job to not to drop the charges. So O'Neill actually has the Englishman arrested from a job where he's working on a roof, has him arrested, brought into the station house, and compels him to testify against the criminals. And the criminals are, are convicted, and they're sentenced to a relatively light sentence. But that's the, the... And he tells this story to the National Association of Chiefs of Police that he's giving an address to, and they cheer this, because they all share this frustration. The rule of law is very difficult to bring about. And he's very frustrated by that system, a lot. And he says it's morally degrading. And he loves, uh, sort of loves the big alternative Americans were pushing at the time, which is civil service reform, which sounds jaw drumming, no, you know, numbingly boring. But the idea is that to be a civil servant, you'd have to pass an exam. So to be a cop, at the minimum, you'd have to speak English, right? And you'd have to demonstrate you understood the Constitution in a basic way. You understood the, the legal system in a basic way. You'd have to take an exam. And if you couldn't take the exam, you couldn't get the job. And the higher you scored on the on the exam, the better you could, the, the higher your job could be. And O'Neill took that exam, even though he didn't have to. And he boasted frequently that he had gotten the highest score ever on that exam. He's very proud of that. That he was he was good because he was good, not because he was, you know, the drinking buddy of the alderman. It was very important to him. And he consistently with reservations recommended the civil service system as an alternative to the naked corruption of the police force. But at this, he also benefited from the naked corruption of the police force, and I think probably fostered it to some extent, although he says over and over that he didn't. But, you know, why should we take his word for it? So do you see his legacy as a police chief and an unusually long serving police chief for the period since he did? stay there for two terms and a little bit into a third. Do you see any kind of legacy of his being trying to sort of professionalize the um, Chicago Police uh, Department a bit, or was that just not possible in this period? He, he does want to professionalize it. That's what the Bertillon system is doing. It's an objective system of measurement rather than, I don't know, I think he looks like Smith. You know, I, uh, it's also... Um, he wants to rationalize record keeping. He wants to get the pay. To, he wants to improve pay. He wants to introduce measures. They, they have a problem that guys are on the force and then they just stop doing any work. You know, they they get lazy. They just spend their time in a tavern. You know, they don't go in the rounds. He has a problem with that. And he's embarrassed by a report about that, although he encourages that report because he wants to reform the police force. 
I would say one way in which he's, his legacy is not attractive, uh, and people in the Irish music community do not want to hear this because O'Neill is kind of a Santa Claus figure in that uh, community, is that he was openly advocated things that we would call torture. Uh, he defended that very publicly and very vociferously, including something they called the water cure, which involved forcing water down someone's throat uh, with a tube and then stomping on their stomach to make them eject the water or uh, sweating suspects where they would put them in isolation in a really hot room. And he um, defended that several times in the newspaper and then to the uh, in his annual report as chief of police. He felt it was necessary and that it was it, the police didn't do anything that other people didn't do and that their only goal was to bring evildoers to justice. But the Chicago Police Department has a particularly bad reputation, uh, a history with torture. And they were, in fact, required to pay reparations for consistent acts of torture in the in the 90s. Um, so that is part of his legacy. He's defending that. I don't think he liked it. And there's a great account. Emma Goldman, the anarchist, told a interesting story of being arrested by the Chicago police on suspicion of having helped assassinate William McKinley. And O'Neill comes to her rescue when she's being tortured and sets her free. But his goal there was to, it's complicated, his goal was to bring another faction of the police force into disfavor and undercut their claims that anarchists were running wild. It's not that he had any enthusiasm for either anarchists or um, any particular revulsion at the rough treatment of suspects. And that is, that is interesting about him. I mean, he came up in a hard world and uh, I'm sure the, the he describes police work as brutalizing and unpleasant to a man of refined moral sensibilities, he says. And you can feel that in his writing. Um, yeah, you, you give a lot of examples where he was clearly a really good politician and he would never have made it as far as he did without being able to uh, navigate that himself. And he didn't do it by just trying to keep his head down and, and have nobody notice no. him. He he was actively, actively playing play yeah. people off from each other. So that's that I thought that was he fascinating. Was that. Yeah. He was also yeah. very good with the press. The press liked him. And he was very good at giving kind of deadpan statements that nobody believed, but the press could write as if they were true. There was a kind of tongue in cheek quality to a lot of what he would say. He would flatly say, well, we're you know, we're we're restricting piano music because the Franciscan friars in the Levy district have complained. And you know, nobody believed that. Um, but he would say those things. And the, the press liked him a lot. I think they liked him because he wasn't um, because he had a dry sense of humor, uh, because he was willing to be fairly frank. Um, he wasn't overtly corrupt. He wasn't going to be drunk. You know, he, he was he was playing a role that tended to put him in the city's elite rather than among the aldermen who were a rough bunch of customers often. Uh, but he was a good politician. Yes. What do you see as his legacy as a collector of Irish music or what is yeah. his legacy in Irish music? It's, it's very interesting. I, he dies thinking that his books are kind of failed and he didn't, they didn't sell that well. He complained a lot that Irish people didn't buy them. You know, they they talk about buying them, they never do. And he complains a lot that the music has declined in Ireland. But that but it's clear that Irish music was played in Chicago, in New York, in Philly, in Boston enthusiastically, uh, with or without Chief O'Neill's collections. Uh, the, right, right, you know, by 1919, there's a booming industry of ethnic records, 
and recordings by Irish Americans that are being sent to Ireland and all over the world, like Michael Coleman, who's a virtuoso fiddler, uh, that are very popular. And there's no evidence that Coleman got any of that from Francis O'Neill. So I don't know that he actually saved Irish music. I think in some ways the claims that he saved it come from people in Ireland who are trying to position themselves to control the the collection and perception and fostering of folk music in Ireland, who want to see him as a savior figure. Uh, I think he's an admirable man. It's an impressive, it's a really impressive accomplishment to collect all those tunes and sort them out. It took a huge amount of work. Um, I don't think he's, I think this music was vibrant and was going on without him and would have gone on without him. And I guess if, I mean, I like this music and I play it, but that if 300 tunes were lost, there's some, there's 600 very similar tunes waiting to join the canon. You know, it's not, it's not, uh, it's a living tradition, right? It, it wouldn't die because some tunes were lost. <laughs> so I think his, I think his legacy is sort of complicated in Chicago he was championed by a really fascinating man named Kevin Henry, who was an Irish-born flute player and steel worker. And Henry led sessions all over Ireland, particularly on the South Side. And he would regularly play a little concert at O'Neill's tomb. And he regarded O'Neill as the man that saved the music. But uh, his friend, Malachi Tui, was a Bauron player. And Malachi would always say, no, he's a union buster. He's not. <laughs> they would argue about it. But And Henry was no fool. Kevin Henry was no fool. He knew that side of O'Neill. And I, I'll confess, I don't know quite what he meant by O'Neill as the savior, because I think Irish music continued without that collection. Although most people who play Irish music have a copy and they'll refer to it. But of course, now the internet displaces a lot of that. There are stories in Ireland of people consulting the book and they'll say it's number 232 in the book, you know, things like there are stories about that. But I'm a little skeptical that the salvation part is 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 there. He did define Irishness in America in an interesting way. Meaning what? Well, he defined he defined the cultural practices. He defined a body of music that you could refer to. And in Chicago, it's particularly keenly felt. You know, there were people who, until relatively recently, there were people alive who had met him. You know, he lived into the 30s. So there were people that had actually met him. And um, the practice of our well, but he's at odds with that community. There's a great story in there where he goes to visit. He adopts this kid, sort of semi-formally adopts an orphan kid named George West, who's a great fiddler. And West takes him to see a friend of his who's named O'Malley. No relation. And O'Malley is, has nine fingers. He's missing a finger from his left hand. But O'Neill says, despite this disability, he plays like a house of fire. He's a really good player. Um, even though he was reluctant to play for a policeman and they had to drop some coins and produce some beer, and then he would start playing. And O'Malley, though, doesn't have any new tunes. And that's the last you hear of him. He said O'Malley eked out a living playing at house dances, uh, but he didn't have any new tunes. So O'Neill has nothing to say about him. He's not interested in how he's missing a finger. Was it an industrial accident? He's not interested in those house dances. There's a thriving community, in other words, that he's not interested in. What he's interested in is extracting these distinctive artifacts. And to me, that links him to colonialism. And it links collecting to a colonialist impulse. And I want to say, not to say collecting is evil or anything. It's it's great that he did that collection, but it's an extractive enterprise. He's extracting them from one lived context and pinning them in place in the book. And uh, when people couldn't produce something distinctive, he really didn't know how to celebrate it or foster it. 
Well, unfortunately, we are running short of time, so we'll have to stop there with our discussion. But it, there's certainly many other things that we could have talked about. There's, uh, It's always impossible to cover every point. But um, I appreciate you talking to me about this. And um, now that you're finished with this project, what are you working on now? Uh, I I finished a book. It'll be out in the fall about uh, some ancestors of mine who were declared to be colored. One of them was born in Ireland, and he was declared to be colored by the state of Virginia, where I now live. And technically, by law, that makes me a colored person in Virginia, which is comically absurd. So it's a book about family history, genealogy, and conventional history. And that, that'll be out in the fall. But then I'm researching a book about the history of music and machines. And I'm very interested in... Um, particularly like uniform uniformity and tempo. What's the relationship between clocks and metronomes and the aesthetic preference for uniformity and tempo? If you go to the Taylor Swift concert, I'm sure everybody on stage has a click track in their ear to sync the lights and the dancers, and it's all synced. And where does that preference for uniformity come from? And I've played a lot of gigs with drummers who can't keep time or with sometimes I'm the guy who can't keep time. And time is a constant problem. Why do we prefer uniformity? And you, I think you could argue that pre-industrial people had an elastic tempo. They had a tempo you could dance to, but it was probably very elastic. It probably sped up and slowed down in response to what the audience was doing. So I'm interested in how machines produced an aesthetic taste for uniformity. So I'll be looking at calliopes and orchestrions and mechanical banjos and player pianos and things like that. Well, that sounds like a fascinating project. In fact, both of them do. So I wish you luck as, as you finish those up as well. Um, so thank you so much for joining me today. My name is Kristen Turner, and this is New Books in Music. And I've been talking to Michael O'Malley, author of The Beat Cop, Chicago's Chief O'Neill and the Creation of Irish Music. Thank you. Thank you very much.